all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. And we think we're a lot smarter than my grandparents were while we boiled spinach. But in fact, what we're doing is by eating spinach raw, we are getting 100% of the oxalate in the spinach. It used to be that when you boiled it, some of the oxalate would go off into the cooking water and you would throw the cooking water away. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 219 with our good friend Aaron Murphy and the low oxalate coach Monique Attinger. Also, welcome our show producer and brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn three things. Number one, how oxalates poison your body. How going cold turkey off oxalates can put you in the emergency room. And what the first step is for safely reducing oxalates in your diet. Thank you, Aurora, and a big shout out to you longtime Lime Ninjas. You are the reason we have half a million downloads. It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We, we just reached half a million. And Aurora and I really, really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. And this past week, we've had listeners from Ethiopia to Estonia, and from Argentina to Australia. That's quite the tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, I do that to myself every week. <laughs> okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about this week's guests, Aaron Murphy and Monique Attinger. Monique Attinger's life completely changed after switching to a low-oxalate diet. She now shares her expertise as the low-oxalate coach and helps people safely lower their oxalates. Erin Murphy uses herbal nutrition to treat her Lyme symptoms and recently discovered oxalates were a major roadblock on her road to recovery. Erin has a master's degree in nutrition. Thank you, Aurora, and here's our interview with Erin and Monique. Hello, Aaron and Monique. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Good morning, McKay. 
We have extra special show today because we're doing a group call. Yay. They're more fun. Yay. The more people, the better. <laughs> now, some of you longtime listeners may recognize Erin's name and voice. She comes back and visits us frequently, and we love having her on the show. She's one of my go-to people with Lyme's disease and nutrition. And Erin has been dealing with multiple things over the years, including an oxalate issue. And oxalate, some of you may be aware of, can be a significant roadblock to healing in general, let alone when you've got the complications of Lyme disease thrown on top of it. So, Erin, why don't you say hello to everybody? Hello, everybody. Happy to be back and happy to talk about um, an important topic that really helps me improve my health. Thanks. And our other guest is Monique, and she is an expert. She coaches people on getting oxalates out of their system and recovering from being over-oxalated, if that's a word. Hyper-oxalated? We'll, we'll coin a new <laughs> phrase today. So, Monique, welcome. And why don't you just give us a real short uh, bio on, on who you are? Okay. So, perhaps I'll share a little bit of my story at the same time, just because it kind of makes sense as to why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And um, so I am working now as a certified holistic nutrition coach. I'm on my way to becoming a nutritionist. And my main motivation in doing this has been years now of actually working with clients and actually dealing with my family and my own health problems. And Oxalate became a factor for us uh, over a decade ago when my uh, youngest daughter was diagnosed by our naturopathic doctor. Um, she had some symptoms that were very distinctive of oxalate, including these nasty rashes that looked like chemical burns. And she was actually at the tender age of two and a half developing vulvodynia. And he said to me, um, she has an oxalate problem. And what I remember from that moment is looking at him and saying, what's an oxalate? <laughs> um, because it was something I'd never heard of, um, like ever. And I had been a bit of a nutrition fan, always looking at ways to improve our diet for years. And in part because I was an older mom. So the, the daughter who was sick had been born when I was 45. And at that point, I wasn't feeling very healthy myself either. So I said to my daughter that we would, uh, even at two and a half, she was actually fairly verbal and a smart little cookie. And so I said to her, you and I are going to eat like this and we're going to figure out just how good it is to eat in this special way where we reduce oxalate. And I always use the real words for things with my kids. So my kids have been able to say oxalate since they were little. <laughs> anyway, um, and the interesting thing for me is never were more prophetic words said because at that point in time, I was 47, staring down 48. And um, I had all kinds of things going on, brain fog, digestive problems, uh, terrible insomnia, poor recovery from exercise, sort of chronic, I was probably towing into a chronic fatigue situation. Um, I had problems with my iron levels, I had problems with my thyroid, like it just went on and on and on. And I honestly thought at that point that if I was that bad at 48, and I'd had my kids late, I wasn't going to see them grow up, I was going to be lucky to see them into adulthood. So let's 
let's bring the good news story of this very quickly. Um, I'm now 10 years plus down the road. Um, in the last few years, I took up karate, and I'm probably healthier than I've ever been in my adult life. So reducing oxalate was certainly a key piece in our story. And as I learned more and kind of soaked in um, the support groups and actually started to do some work with Susan Owens, who started the Triangle Oxalate support groups, which are the, the best ones out there, um, she kind of brought me into a small group that was attempting to get the word out um, and where she was educating us and exposing us to the research. Um, my background was some science from my undergrad degree, but I have a master's degree in library and information science. So as a result, when she was throwing research at me, I was then taking that and um, you know, finding related studies, you know, kind of doing doing the whole crawl through whatever I could find on PubMed that was publicly available. And so after about five years of this, someone on the support group said, I'd like to work with you. If I was going to work with anybody, I'd work with you. And that kind of started me off on a whole new career uh, based on on Oxlate. And since then, I've decided that rather than have people guess as to why somebody with a master's in library and information science and an undergrad degree in sociology would know anything about science, that I would get um, an understandable credential. So now that I now that I have the understandable credential, I'm doing a lot more work, but I have been working with clients for about five years and really doing essentially what you said, McKay, which is helping them understand how oxalate could be impacting them, helping them reduce the oxalate sources in their diet, helping them to use supplements um, so that they can better uh, weather the whole process of oxalate coming out of the body because that's a bit of a challenge. Um, and many people find that there are, there are certain sort of classic things that happen. And so I can help them with that. And, um, you know, very much working like a coach with these people and being able to say, look, I'm a little further down the road than you. Uh, and this is what is possible. I've recovered my health. And so um, in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of a, a bit of a story that says why uh, Monique Attinger ended up in this place in her life uh, with launching a new career uh, in the last few years and, uh, and really supporting people uh, in the whole Oxlate journey. It's always amazing to me. It, it seems like the, the mainstream of medicine takes care of the somewhere between, oh, let's make up a number, 50 and 80% of people. And then the people who fall through the cracks become their own researcher, own scientist, own doctor, and really are, are left to their own devices to take care of themselves. And when you add up all the cracks, there are lots of people out there who are just like you, Monique, and have spent years and years and years tracking down the science behind this. And it's just amazing to me that more of this type of thing is not mainstream. It's like, how? But that seems to be the nature of the beast. You know, it's just, and you'll hear the stories with, with physicians too. It's like, yeah, I was cruising along and thought everything was great. And then I got sick or somebody in my family got sick. And then I start researching XYZ, whatever it is, ketogenic diet, oxalates, 
you know, whatever that might be. And then they right. tell the, you know, Lyme disease. And then they, they tell the story of, oh, wow, we weren't taught any of this in medical school. And it's, I can't believe we weren't taught it. And then they become yeah. an advocate just, just like you have. And it's just, you hear the same pattern over and over and over again. So what you're doing is critical to our understanding of health. Again, because 80% of the people or whatever that is, 60%, 80%, normal recommendations make total sense, right? But there's always the, the other 20, 25, whatever it is, 15% who have the opposite reaction to something or it's invisible and, you know, they throw up their hands. We don't know what's going on. We have no idea. You know, I'm dealing that with the patient right now and uh, her kind of damage done to her knee from Lyme disease. And she was just at the best orthopedic in our area. And the guy said, well, the best I could do for you is we can cut open your knee to take a look and see what's going on in there, but it'll take you a whole year to recover from this. And she said, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> you know, I can yeah. walk now. So thank you yeah. for what you're doing. Well, I mean, for me, it's really been just uh, uh, it's my passion now. So yeah. I, I appreciate the kudos and um, certainly it's been not exactly a linear uh, journey to get here. But in <laughs> fact, I think sometimes that actually makes you a better professional because you've got experience in other areas that actually end, come, end up coming to bear in the work that you're doing now. So. Yeah, you never learn anything if, if you know, you first take a d dose of vitamin C when you're, you know, young and all of a sudden you feel great and that's it. You move on. You know, it's mm -hmm. much more interesting and learning rich when you bump into dead ends and twists and turns. It's not fun, but it's better learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Aaron. You're, I mean, you're our, you're our limey, excuse the phrase for today. <laughs> and how did you get into awareness that oxalates might be a problem and what have you experienced and how did they affect your recovery and kind of tie in oxalates with Lyme for us here? Sure. So I've uh, had, had chronic health issues since I was about 14 years old. It is likely from undiagnosed Lyme disease. Of course, we can't go back in time and confirm that, but given my symptoms and how they developed, that's what is the story for now. Uh, but I was also on large amounts of antibiotics due to acne. And then in 2013, I took ciprofloxacin for a UTI, and my troublesome health became housebound level of health. So I went from being able to maintain uh, you know, a job out of the house and being able to go through grad school, interestingly, for nutrition to uh, being stuck in the house all the time. And of course, as my health got worse, I tried increasingly to eat healthier. And so I found myself going down this path of, you know, having lots of uh, leafy green vegetables, lots of nuts and seeds and dark chocolate for uh, dessert and all kinds of stuff like that. And um Eventually, during this time, I was I found a Lyme doctor and I started working with a Lyme practitioner. Um, and I also worked with an acupuncturist for a while for the treatment of Gu syndrome, which in Chinese medicine is correlated with Lyme disease and chronic infections. Uh, and then I eventually made my way to a Lyme and chronic fatigue specialist and was getting IVs there. And meanwhile, in that time, also, I was taking a lot of herbs that were also extremely high uh, oxalate. So things like cinnamon. Uh, milk thistle seed, 
Uh, I was taking high doses of vitamin C and, and it was just getting, uh, I was getting really crazy symptoms. And uh, eventually I put it together that maybe the Cipro had something to do with the downfall of my health. And so I started um, asking questions in the Cipro group about um, what could be messing up my minerals because I knew that something kept depleting my magnesium because I would start getting myoclonic seizures at night. I was extremely anxious. Uh, I was having constipation, um, all kinds of things that are related to magnesium deficiency, a really bad nystagmus in my eyes. Like my, I couldn't, I couldn't keep my eyes focused. And so I kept going back to that group. I'm like, what would deplete my minerals over and over again, despite eating a good diet and despite taking magnesium regularly. And finally, somebody wrote underneath, check out the trying low oxalate group on Facebook. It sounds like you have an oxalate problem. And so of course, I immediately jumped over to the Trying Low Oxalate group, and uh, I did find some good information there about uh, doing some testing. Uh, people recommended either going to Ubiome or Viome and seeing if I had the bacteria Oxalobacter formagenes. And so that began like a whole year long of me testing my microbiome, and I found that my Oxalobacter formagenes was missing, and it was not repopulating over time. And so I suspected that maybe the Cipro was what kind of depleted the oxalobacter formagenes and either caused the oxalate issue itself or made a pre-existing oxalate issue even worse. Um, and while I was in the low oxalate group, I also got an appointment with Su Susan Owens, who Monique mentioned is uh, one of the lead researchers for the group. And uh, we ran an organic acids test from Great Plains Lab. And she also kind of went through some other things that I'm sure Monique will talk about uh, regarding like B1 thiamine transport causing some oxalate issues. I also maybe have issues with B6, um, which means that I'm an endogenous producer of oxalates, which means that my body produces them internally more than the average person, which means then diet is more important for me than the average person. Um, and uh, I think that's pretty much it. So in, in spring of 2017, I went low oxalate and I uh, slowly, slowly over time, I'm sure Monique will talk about how important that is too. And uh, I started to look so much better. I started to be able to get out of the house again. So I was like housebound mostly for like three and a half years. And then getting introduced to the trying low oxalate group is what got me back out of the house again. And um, just to share, I guess, some of my symptoms that might be helpful. I had a lot of urinary symptoms, a lot of burning over the years, uh, microscopic hematuria, which is where I always had very small amounts of blood in my urine, uh, protein, frequent UTI-like symptoms. Um, when I'm dumping oxalates, which again, I think Monique will talk about, uh, my urine tends to smell like sulfur because I'm losing sulfur molecules during the dumping phases. Uh, I had skin issues. I had really bad acne, and it reminded me of what Monique said about her daughter having like a chemical burn rash and my acne really it looked more like a burn than than acne it was really challenging on my face lots of histamine issues uh during the oxalate when i was on a very high, high oxalate diet uh neurological issues cognitive issues anxiety extreme insomnia i still get that to this day when i am uh in a dumping phase mineral issues especially magnesium calcium potassium tachycardia and arrhythmias that landed me in urgent care and in the emergency room several times uh, with my heart rate about 160 and above. Um, hormone issues, uh, it, the oxalates for me definitely seem to affect PMS, the length of my cycle, and how well I seem to be ovulating at a given time. 
Uh, and again, digestive issues and uh, chronic fatigue. But again, I have Lyme disease, so it's sort of hard to pull some of those symptoms apart. But changing my intake of oxalates really helped a lot of things and helped me start getting my life back. And um, I guess the last symptom that I, w- I had that was interesting is that I couldn't figure out why B vitamins seemed to keep making me worse at first. And then from being in the trying low oxalate group, I learned that B vitamins can sometimes trigger your body to release stored oxalates. And so, so that was interesting. I had to build my way up to taking B vitamins successfully without causing myself negative consequences. So that's pretty much it. That's the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) What? That's Um, it? If I can wade in just Uh, for, uh, just for a second. Of course. I have to say that Erin sounds like a poster girl for all of the worst things that can happen with Oxlade. Seriously, I, I don't think she missed a, a, a dot on the map for, for a client profile for me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So let's. And she's a great example of how it's systemic. Yeah. 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 So that group saved my life, Com- like completely, really saved my life. So I owe you a huge. Thanks in person. I would love to shake your hand someday. <laughs> Maybe we can make that happen. Yeah. Happy. <laughs> you and Susan Owens. <laughs> we need a big group hug. Yes. <laughs> Let's pause here. And Monique, I'm going to ask you to let's start and rewind a little bit and just go back to the basics. Like what is an oxalate? Where do they come from and why do they accumulate in the body? So that's kind of three questions. And then the fourth one is what's, you know, what's so hard about detoxifying the oxalates from, from your body once they've accumulated? Then that should take like three or four days for us to cover, right? Um, well, it could, but let me give you the reader's digest condensed version because I think these are all very important questions for people to understand what the playing field is. So um, let's start out with oxalate. Oxalate's actually a fairly simple molecule, but it's highly stable and it occurs not in animal foods generally. Um, There's some rare exceptions, but really this is a plant molecule and plants are using it for a variety of reasons. In some cases to um, pull up minerals into their structure. So oxalate is a mineral chelator, and we'll talk a little bit more about that afterwards because Aaron spoke about that. Um, But oxalate is also a poison. So like other things that plants do to protect themselves, oxalate is one of the ways in which plants protect themselves. The interesting thing about that is that Oxalate's not just a poison in sort of the straight-ahead sense, as in it poisons the cells. It's also a a physical uh, protection for some plants. They have so much of it in there that any insect trying to chew on a leaf will actually have its mouth ground up by the oxalate crystals. So oxalate can do multiple things. It can poison you, can damage tissues through crystals. And it's a mineral chelator, which means that minerals in your body may be unavailable because oxalate is chelating them and then it's being carried out of your body with the oxalate. So oxalate can be doing many, many things. 
it is a human poison. There is research which points to people who have been uh, killed by oxalate. Um, and in some cases, recent case studies have looked at things like green smoothie cleanses um, as actually leaving a particular individual who was part of this case study with um, uh, renal function so bad they needed a transplant. So people think that because it occurs in plants that somehow it's benevolent, uh, but just because plants can't run away doesn't mean they want to be eaten. <laughs> so I think, I think we assume somehow that every plant is just saying, okay, eat me, but it's not. Um, and they have reasons to protect themselves too. Now, um, having said that, many of the, the foods that are highest in oxalate are things like nuts and seeds. And this should not be a surprise to us because that is the most important thing that a plant is producing. It's allowing it to reproduce itself. So those are protected from predation. Um, the other parts of plants that tend to be more likely to contain oxalate will be things like tender greens. So a lot of the foods we think of as being the healthiest are actually the highest in oxalate. And this does not mean the food doesn't have other good things in it, but it's bound up with what is essentially a poison. And for, for those who are old enough to remember backyard rhubarb plants, when I was a kid, this was very common. One of the things that um, any kid who was in a neighborhood with backyard rhubarb plants would be told is don't eat the leaves. Um, rhubarb is actually incredibly high in oxalate, but the leaves are high enough in oxalate to kill you with a single exposure. So you eat a rhubarb leaf and you could end up dead, which is why we all knew that. Um, but below that threshold where it kills you uh, in, a, in a single exposure or, or rapidly because you're eating very high amounts of it, is a level at which you may not notice that you're having a problem, but your body is absorbing oxalate and the oxalate is getting into your tissues. And the reason I think that this is happening is a combination of things. We have a very um, different diet today than even if you go back 50 or 60 years. Foods used to be seasonal. We can eat fresh spinach as an example 365 days a year because it can be shipped in quickly enough from a warm location that we're actually able to eat it and secondarily to seasonality is the whole issue of how we we um we cook and process these foods and we think we're a lot smarter than my grandparents were who always boiled spinach but in fact what we're doing is by eating spinach raw we are getting 100% of the oxalate in the spinach. It used to be that when you boiled it, some of the oxalate would go off into the cooking water and you would throw the cooking water away. So we have ways where we traditionally ate foods and now we think we're too smart for that. Nutritionists say, oh no, eat as much raw as possible. Well, that means that you're getting all the oxalate that's in the plant. It, so let me, let me be, before we go on there, thanks. You mentioned boiling spinach. How much can we reduce oxalate load in the diet by cooking? Is I've read different things about it. A that you know doesn't change things that much, or that B it might be helpful. So I want your expert opinion on processing and 
getting oxalates out by cooking? Okay, so this is a very complex question because unfortunately, virtually every plant has a unique oxalate profile. I'll give you a great example. If you eat the conventional, you know, sort of regular kale that you would find in the store, a curly kale, that's very high oxalate. However, if you go and buy Dino or Lacinto kale or purple, purple kale, those are low oxalate. So part of it is how much oxalate's in the food to start out with. Um, spinach is actually a great example. I would never eat spinach ever. Mm-hmm. And doesn't matter whether it's boiled or fresh anymore because the amount of oxalate that's left, in my opinion, is just too high even after boiling for it to be safe to consume. So in some foods, it'll make all the difference in the world. If you boil collards, for instance, they will become medium oxalate, even though they're wilted and um, you kind of get more collard per serving than you were would if it's raw. But you've taken some of the oxalate out, you've cooked it, um, and you can eat it that way. And rather than being, uh, you know, a higher oxalate green, it's a, it's now, you know, a, a green that you can consume. You can do the same thing with like mustard greens and, uh, um, how about Swiss some chard? Forms of kale. Swiss chard, you can't make okay. You cannot? No, you mm. can't make that one okay. Swiss chard is actually one of the highest foods that we've tested. We, we have a ton <laughs> of that in our that, freezer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Uh, the, the problem with Swiss chard is really the, the concentration of the oxalate in the chard. And again, even if you boil it, you can't get enough out. Oxalate actually occurs in two forms inside plants. It occurs as a crystal, which is insoluble oxalate. So that's already chelated to a mineral, but if you absorb it, it's still not happy for your system. The other form of oxalate is soluble oxalate, and that's the one where if you boil, you can move some of it out of the plant. So a thing that would be would become okay with boiling and is not okay if you steam, for instance, would be Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts are low oxalate if you boil them. If you steam them, they're medium oxalate. Some people might be able to handle them at that level. I, I don't take the chance. Because the other problem with oxalate is that when it is coming into the body before we are sick enough and have enough uh, oxalate load in our tissues, that is essentially happening silently. So we won't see any symptoms necessarily. But what will begin to happen is the oxalate will be trafficked into tissues and then basically get marooned there. And that's because of a, of a problem with um, mistaken identity, essentially. So <clears throat> let me deal with that a little bit because that's a little confusing for some people as to how your body could mistake something pull it in. So our bodies use nutrients and our cell transporters on cells are what pull those nutrients into the cell for us to make use of them. Very key nutrients for our body include both bicarbonate and sulfate, and you'll notice that oxalate has the same ending to the word, and that reflects that there's a similar biochemical ending on the molecule. And so the problem is, is that 
you've got the cell transporters, they're looking for bicarbonate to do a process inside the cell. An oxalate molecule drifts by. Well, the biochemical ending looks correct, so the cell transporter picks it up, pulls it into the cell, but it's not the right substance. So whatever process the cell was going to run that used that nutrient, it can't run it. But it also, because of oxalate's nature, makes it hard for the cell to get that um, molecule of, of oxalate back out because it takes energy to cell transport in. It also takes energy to cell transport out. So what happens over time is we end up with this toxic load of oxalate in our tissues and any cells that are mistaking these oxalate molecules for other nutrients that they need um, can have a load of that oxalate inside. Unfortunately, um, bicarbonate is the pancreas mostly. Um, the, the pancreas is doing a lot with bicarbonate and your body is actually managing pH overall with bicarbonate. And the liver is one of the biggest users of sulfate. So a lot of the symptoms that people talk about in terms of poor digestion, the liver and the pancreas are both involved in digestion, um, poor detox, of course, liver is key to that. Um, these are kind of predictable based on what oxalate is and um, how it confuses these cell transporters. So you mentioned liver and the pancreas as organs or tissue where oxalates tend to accumulate. Are there other tissues that have a high affinity for, let's say, we'll call it sequestering of the oxalates? Because the body, if the body had its druthers, it would excrete them. Right. And there, there's if a little bit of. Had its brother, yeah. It would get rid of it. But you need it to stay in the bloodstream because the kidneys are the primary removers of oxalate. So once the oxalate's into the tissues, you have a challenge there because you've got to get it back out into the bloodstream so the kidneys can deal with it. Right. Now, having said that, um, research with patients who have hyperoxaluria, and those are people who are metabolically making oxalate. And there are certain genetic conditions. Um, there's hyperoxaluria 1 and 2, which are basically genetic. Those people are making oxalate because of a, a mistake in their, their DNA. From looking at those people and the kinds of things they have to deal with once they have a liver transplant, which fixes it for them, you'll find oxalate in basically any system in the body you can think of. When they've when they've dissected lab rats after making them oxalate toxic, they have found oxalate in the bones. That would be one of the biggest reservoirs of oxalate. And the problem there is that um, oxalate, as a mineral chelator, calcium is one of its favorite dance partners. So that's how it ends up in the bone. So when oxalates are uh, the bone, does that make them brittle? Does that give you the... Oh, absolutely can. Yeah, uh, because the, the calcium is not going to be used the way it's supposed to be used when yeah. it's attached to oxalate. It makes a different, right? there's a different crystal structure because of the oxalate. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And wow. so the thing there is that um, the, bio, the actual biochemistry down at the level of how the bone is created um, is an area where I haven't looked really carefully. But what I can say for sure is that I've had clients where once we got them through a number of years of oxalate, um, lowered in their diet, proper supplementation, some of these people actually ended up having um, follow-up for 
uh, osteoporosis or osteopenia and actually found that their bone mass had improved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other places where you can find oxalate, they seem to like glands. So the thyroid seems to be impacted. Um, we did talk about the pancreas. Um, a lot of women will, will show a, a periodic dumping that, uh, of where oxalate is moving out of the tissues. We call it dumping because it sort of floods into the bloodstream and um, uh, kind of hits like a wave. It's an ebb and flow process. It's not a linear, you know, comes out a little bit at a time. That would make it easier. Um, but women on their cycle will sometimes have a periodic dump at a certain point in their cycle. So there seems to be some issue that's reported on the support groups with oxalate and female hormonal cycle. There's also evidence which shows that it can build up in the heart, that it can um, it can be present in the joints, um, and it can be present in other organs. So the liver is one, but that's uh, that's not the only one. So we hear of people having problems with their spleen. Um, so basically, you know, we, there's there's nothing safe <laughs> from there, oxalates. There, there doesn't appear to be anything safe, and in fact. Um, and I had this experience personally, both my babies had big oxalate dumps in the first few months after they were born. And, um, in hindsight, like at the time when they were, when they were babies, I didn't know about the low oxalate diet. I was trying to eat extra healthy. So I was doing that thing, um, that seems to get more and more of us into trouble. And, um, both of them showed signs of oxalate. And the research on lab animals shows that oxalate goes, like, is passed through the placenta. Yeah. Now, so, yeah, we're not, we're, we can't really protect any tissues necessarily from accumulating it. It's more a matter of then manage, managing getting it back out again. Yeah, so let's, that's the next step in our conversation is to talk about removing oxalate, oxalate detoxification. And you mentioned the phrase oxalate dumping to describe what happens. So normally when you detox something, you know, if you have methylmercury in your fish, the simple thing to do is you stop eating methylmercury. If you're you're drinking too much alcohol, you stop drinking alcohol. What makes oxalates different that you just can't go cold turkey with them? Okay, you kind of have to... Um, for those who are familiar with heavy metal detox, you kind of have to compare oxalate to getting heavy metals out. The problem is, is that oxalate is just as toxic on the way out as it was on the way in. You are not safe from it once it's in your bloodstream. Like, your body has to deal with this poison, and, and the only way it can really deal with this poison is to excrete it. So the only thing in... in my experience that looks similar is heavy metal detox, where if you have too much heavy metals moving at once, you can just make yourself really sick again, right? Mm-hmm. So the problem with oxalate is the degree of um, toxicity combined with the fact that when it's moving, it's going to chelate minerals so that you're going to have issues from low minerals, which can also affect your ability to excrete things. and um, you know, just the the damage that it does in terms of being a mitochondrial toxin. So, getting getting it out is just not easy. the 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 main part of the work is done by the kidneys, 
who are going to sweep it out of the bloodstream. But in order for that to happen, you kind of have to have done um, enough mineral supplementation and, um, you know, support to the body overall so that um, the right nutrients are available. That means the cell transporters won't pick up oxalate. If the preferred nutrient is there, like sulfate, then they'll pick up the sulfate. They won't pick up the oxalate, leaves it in the bloodstream. You want to have enough minerals available in the bloodstream so that if it's going to chelate minerals, it's not going to adversely affect you. And there is this phenomena where it doesn't come out as a steady stream. It, it sort of dumps into the tissues in a, in a gush and you have more of an ebb and flow kind of situation. So when people talk about dumping, what they're really saying is at this point, my body's trying to get rid of a bunch of oxalate. Then eventually, um, and shorter time periods, the longer you do the low oxalate diet, eventually the, the dump resolves. And for many of us, after we've gone through um, some length of time of reducing oxalate in our diet and having these kind of dumping episodes, we will find that we'll have longer time periods between dumps and that the dumping itself will be less intense when it happens. But the only way your body can get rid of it, only way, I need to be really clear here, this is not a liver detox phase two, la la la, any of those kinds of things. Your body has to excrete it, period. So that's how you get rid of oxalate. It must be excreted. And only through the kidneys or can you excrete it through the bowels as well? You can actually get have it moving out of your system in all the ways you excrete. So it can be secreted into the bowels and come out through the bowels. It, if the kidneys are doing the lion's share usually, but the lungs may also move it. So you may be getting rid of oxalate via mucus and the respiratory system. And you can actually have oxalate coming out through the skin via sweat. Ha, huh, how about that? And Aaron. the eyes. Oh, uh, your and eyes? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Tears? Aaron is correct. Yep. Oxalate is known to collect in the vitreous gel in the eyes. So people can have tears as a method for getting rid of it. And as someone who's actually had that, it's very annoying. And yep. um, your eyes can be very irritated and sore. And at one point, I decided to go to ER because I was having a lot of pain in the one eye. And the doctor did an examination and said that your my cornea had cuts on it, but that whatever had done it was no longer present. So I was shocked, but sure that I knew that what had happened is oxalate crystals had moved out of that eye and I'd cut my own eye. That's Amazing. crazy. Yeah. Aaron, are you still dumping? Yeah, I still periodically dump. I'm only about um, two, like a year and a half, I guess, into the low oxalate diet. So I'm pretty sure that's to be expected for the first few several years. And also, uh, sometimes it gets complicated by um, like something that I'm doing for Lyme disease. And I might try a new herb or something like that. And then I'm like, Oh, I noticed my oxalate symptoms are coming back and I have to back down. I do have I have a, a spreadsheet that was created by the trying low oxalate group that lists a lot of herbs and supplements to help give you an idea of how it's going to impact your oxalate load, but not every single thing has been tested yet. And so sometimes I do guess, and sometimes I guess incorrectly <laughs> and probably set, my, set myself back a little bit. Um, but yeah, like, like Monique said, it's much less intense than it was before. 
Um, I'm not ending up in urgent care or the ER with heart issues anymore. And that's great. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just getting more manageable. And also I, I know what's happening now, which is much less scary. And I know that if I take extra minerals or if I get an Epsom salt bath or, um, or if I cut back on something, like if I'm taking a lot of B vitamins, if I pull back on them a little bit, then it'll lessen the symptoms for me. And Erin's saying something really key here. Um, you'll notice she talked about hitting urgent care or emergency because of her symptoms. This is not unusual. So we think that somehow we should be able to handle oxalate and that it can't be that bad because it's in a plant. But I walked into the emergency in our local hospital with my blood pressure running 230 over 130. Wow. And I was in the middle of a very intense dump. I knew exactly what it was, but I didn't want to put myself in danger. So I walked in there. They monitored me. It took, you know, a few hours, but it settled down. And um, like Aaron, uh, I got better at making sure I was taking my Epsom salt bath, making <laughs> sure I was doing um, the things that support the entire body. But um, I don't want anybody to think that they should tackle reducing oxalate by just dropping all the high oxalate foods in their diet all at once. Yeah. This, I have had more than one client end up in the hospital having done that. And in most cases, they've come to me only after they've already dumped, like dropped that much oxalate in their diet. And um, that can be a very dangerous situation. So if you were really heavy metal toxic, they would need to move it out of you slowly. And oxalate's the same thing. And I want to add to what Erin has said about how long it takes for it to come out. It can take years, but it's once you've been through the first nine to 12 months, assuming that you're not um, a genetic hyperoxaluria person, you should be, you know, having a much more manageable situation. But it can take time to figure out what supplements are the right ones for you. Um, you know, in some cases, people can't tolerate an Epsom salt bath to start out with. So you may have to start with very small amounts of things like that and work up. Epsom salts is actually critical because you're getting both magnesium and you're getting sulfate. So it's a one-two punch in terms of oxalate. Mm -hmm. So there are things like that which, which look very simple and look not that important because they're not a fancy supplement and they're not a, they're not a drug or they're not a whatever. But they're really key to the overall um, you know, health of your body and your ability to manage what's happening as oxalate moves out. And I, I, I want to add one more thing. Magnesium is the one you want oxalate to chelate. The reason why is that magnesium oxalate is much less toxic as a compound than calcium oxalate. And further, um, magnesium is actually um, one of the, the, the easier to excrete versions of oxalate because calcium oxalate will settle out in the kidneys as kidney stones. I mean, that's how most people who know anything about oxalate actually know about oxalate it has to do with kidney stones. So um, there's lots of good reasons for Epsom salt baths to be a, a key support, and not the least of which is that you, you're soaking it in through all the skin that ex is exposed to it in the bath, and that means you're getting all over support 
Um, and given that oxalate can store all over, um, one of my principles is try to get your nutrient um, to the closest approach of where your oxalate is. And this is a great way to make sure that it's diffusing in and everywhere. Since we're talking about minerals and then binding with oxalates, and you, you may not know this, or there may not be research out on this, but can oxalates bind to all the minerals, or does it have uh, an affinity to certain ones? Obviously, calcium and magnesium you mentioned. Yep. So, there are preferred dance partners, if you will, which is how I refer to it. Um, and the preferred dance partners will really will really be um, minerals where they have a double positive cation when, they, when they're in, um, dissolved in your bodily fluids. So double positive cations will include calcium and magnesium, but you also have some iron, which is a double positive cation. You, um, you have zinc, which can occur in that form. You have copper, which can occur in that form. So there are more minerals than just um, calcium and magnesium that oxalate can be affecting and chelating in this way. Okay, thanks. And then if somebody's listening to this and thinking, oh my goodness, you know, that sounds like me, what you're talking about here, right. and they want right. to get started, you know, right. we've, we've kind of said, okay, this is super dangerous and it's super dangerous to do anything about it. So instead of leaving people just, paralyzed with oh my god i'm there's nothing i can do obviously we can start doing things but what how do you do this gently how do you do this the right way right that's what we really want to talk about because i was one of those people who i'm sure i had a, an incredible oxalate load in my body i was probably taking in um somewhere in the area of like 1500 to 2000 milligrams of oxalate a day when i was eating you know nuts every day and spinach and swiss chard and beets and like well, all these foods which have this wonderful health reputation, right? Um, and the thing to do is really twofold. One of the best things you can do if you think that oxalate might be affecting you is to join one of two groups called Trying Low Oxalate. There's a support group on Yahoo and there's a support group on Facebook. Um, through those support groups, you can get our spreadsheet, which has all of the testing that either that group has done um, or the other um, two main groups that we know of who are also doing oxalate testing and using the same U.S. lab. We track their data as well. So that spreadsheet will give you a lot of information about what your current diet looks like. At that point, it's really important to pause and come up with a plan. So if you look at your diet and go, oh my gosh, I sound just like Monique. I'm taking in 1,500 milligrams of oxalate a day. Great. Once you have that number, what you want to do is start to slowly replace those foods. And you want to fade them out. So if you typically eat, let's just say every day at lunch, you have a raw spinach salad. Let's just say, okay? So keep having your raw spinach salad, but measure out exactly how much spinach is going in there and slowly but surely swap out 10 grams, 15 grams, maybe an ounce of that spinach with something else. 
but you want to do it really slowly and carefully. So spinach is really high in oxalate. Let's say you're eating 100 grams of it for easy figuring. I would not drop more than 10 grams of that at a time. And I would probably wait two or three days at that level before I drop again. I might even wait a week. It depends how fragile your health is. The more fragile your health is, the slower you got to do this. That's the hard part. Um, but for those, for that 10 grams of spinach I'm taking out, I'm going to put in 10 grams of arugula. Arugula is another great leafy green, high nutrition, very low oxalate. So what you're doing is slowly fading the oxalate out. What you want to end up with is maybe, maybe 10 weeks later, maybe five weeks later, your lunchtime salad is now all arugula and romaine and there's no, there's no spinach left in it. But the reason to do it slowly like this is so that you don't, you don't end up really having a difficult time with the dumping. And it's even better if you can kind of stabilize at a level of oxalate intake before you start to reduce and start with the things that Aaron was suggesting, like Epsom salt baths, mineral supplementation, um, and even a good calcium magnesium combo with, you know, some other minerals in it would be fine. Um, when, then, when, when do you add in, when do you add in the B vitamins? I would imagine that that comes a little bit after you have your diet more stabilized. Yeah. So I would start first with the minerals and the Epsom salt baths. Then I would slowly start to reduce my oxalate and, um, extra magnesium. I would always, I would always take in the beginning. And then once, once you're a little bit into the process, then start to try very slowly with B vitamins. But you need the magnesium for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is magnesium is often used in the body to produce energy at the cellular level. So you need to make sure that's as, as much um, supported in your body as possible. And the B vitamins, they help degrade the oxalates or is it, and they help produce enzymes that help degrade the, the oxalates? Yeah, that's a great question. No. Um, what they're really doing is you're, you're after supporting the mitochondria. Okay. The mitochondria are the parts of the cells that are most challenged by oxalate. This oxalate is a mitochondrial toxin. Mm -hmm. So as you provide the mitochondria with more of the nutrients that they need, then the mitochondria can push the oxalate out of that level. And then if you've got enough magnesium available for ATP, then the cell's got enough energy to pull, push out the oxalate at that level. And you're starting to provide more energy to the system overall. Gotcha. Now, uh, biotin's a little different. Biotin oxalate disrupts directly. Mm -hmm. So with biotin, the reason that you want to take biotin is both to support the gut and your immune system but also because if oxalate is messing with the biotin pathways, you've got quite a large number of biotin-dependent enzymes, which mm. then can be um, disrupted because oxalate is getting in the middle of the process of building them. Right. So key Bs would be B1, B6, and biotin, typically for most people. And I would start each one of those individually and with small amounts and work up mm -hmm. and um, what's a, what's and a small amount <laughs> Mic micrograms right yep i've had clients who had to take 150 microgram biotin capsule 
and had to dissolve it into a couple of ounces of water and take a teaspoon a day. Wow. So it's so unique, McKay. I wish I could give you something more prescriptive, but that's been one of the challenges with dealing with oxalate is that by the time somebody is recognizing an oxalate issue, they could be in very different positions than other people who are recognizing an oxalate issue. And so it may be that they need to start really tiny, but in most cases, let's just say most cases, but not everybody, if you start with the RDA or less, that's probably a good place to start. And note that some people may need many hundreds of times the RDA to actually recover. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Recover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, would would you do something like you? So you mentioned the biotin. Okay, let's say we get a little bit of biotin now into our system, and we're not reacting to it. Would then you move on to like the B six? Okay, let's add a little bit of the B six in, and then the B one, and kind of do a merry go round and and up them. Or would you just continue on the biotin path until you think they were getting enough of that, and then move the other one? I think the merry go round approach is a good one. Again, it it might be a little bit unique depending on the client. Um, For some people, uh, based on their genetics, B1 will be the bomb. And it's just, so with those people, if they start taking a little bit of B1 and they just, they feel like an entirely new person, I might stick with B1 for a bit longer before I start the others. But the challenge with B vitamins is really that often um, the Bs are cofactors to each other. So usually at some point in the merry-go-round process, I'm going to try to get somebody taking a B complex or Mm -hmm. a multivitamin that I'm comfortable with so that they're getting a little bit of everything across the board because we don't want to start to create sort of a a problem with other kinds of deficiencies because uh, they've got enough of biotin, but biotin goes away and does all these things. And then they get to some step in a process that's important and it needs B1 and there's no B1 available, right? So we don't want to to kind of hang processes because they don't have resources available. Okay. One final question, and this may be an easy one. Uh, do you know about bee pollen and oxalates? Is it high in oxalates? It's not high, but it's medium. Okay. So I personally use a little bit of bee pollen in a, in a smoothie that I'll make for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't use a lot of it because, um, the bees are, when they're collecting the pollen, there is some oxalate present in the pollen. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so it's a bit, it's, it's, it's unfortunately not as low as I'd like it to be because I, I like it as an ingredient. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I would only use small amounts of it. And then define small amounts again. Um, How much do you well, put in your smoothie? One, well, I, I'm making smoothie and I'm making it for four. So any... Anything I put in my smoothie, you have to, we'll have to think about it from an individual serving standpoint. Because mm-hmm. um, I think I'm generally throwing in a teaspoon, but I suspect that that really means that the quarter teaspoon is what we want to be at. Yeah. So it's a, re- a very small amount. It is a very small amount. Yeah. yeah. So one teaspoon of bee pollen, depending where you get it from. Um, and so we've tested, we've tested one that's come from Northern Colorado. It might be different in places. Like if you had a whole bunch of bees and they were just collecting pollen from spinach flowers, it might be different. <laughs> but, you know, we're assuming, we're assuming they're, they're collecting from a variety of plants. 
So this is coming in around 10 milligrams of oxalate for a teaspoon. So I have to say that's not horrible, but um, we haven't really defined what's a low oxalate diet and so on. Um, a textbook low oxalate diet is between 40 and 60 milligrams of oxalate a day. I don't have all that many clients where I would say I have them on a textbook low oxalate diet. They're probably more medium. But you can see how if 10 milligrams of oxalate is in one teaspoon of bee pollen and they're taking that every day, that's a significant cut of the oxalate that they should really be taking in in a whole day, right? right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, most of my clients probably are between um, 60 and 80 milligrams of oxalate a day. And the medium range of intake is considered between 60 and 100 milligrams of oxalate. Um, but the scary thing then is that, uh, you know, the textbook definition, and this came out of the Vulvar Pain Foundation, is that anything over 100 milligrams of oxalate a day is considered high intake. And wow. I'd say that's pretty much everybody, right? Yeah. So you really do have to view it as a process to back down into, and I would say for most people, that 60 to 100 range is fine. Like they don't necessarily have to go really low. If you're somebody like Aaron or me, where our health was much more fragile when we started, you might want to back into that 40 to 60 range. I've found the lower oxalate I am, the better I feel now. Mm -hmm. So um, there may be some genetic component there that some people excrete it better than others that we don't really have uh, research on yet. Um, and I think I'm one of those. I'm, I definitely, the lower I am, the better I feel. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I usually start with clients to, in that 60 to 100 range. And I don't try to get to 40 to 60 unless they really need that. Monique, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Aaron, you as well. And Monique, why don't you wrap up, you know, what's the one thing that you'd recommend for somebody beginning to look into oxalates? And then please let us know where we can get more information from you and some of these groups. Okay. So if somebody's just starting to look into oxalate, I would really encourage them because as, as much as we've said about how bad it is, what I can say in my own case is how good it has been to actually reduce it. Um, I honestly did not think I would live to see my children grow up. My children at this point in time are 13 and 18 and their mother does karate. Like that is a whole <laughs> new world. Okay. That's when I awesome. started this diet, I, I, had a hard time recovering from the amount of energy it took to make supper. So it, it, it is a whole new world and it is, it's well worth it to deal with the complexity of this um, in a diet and start to, you know, make some different choices for those who are not sick, but want to retain as much healthfulness as possible. I would suggest that they look at, different staples, which might be a little lower in oxalate, just to dodge a bullet. I mean, uh, a lot of us in old age are dealing with chronic inflammation. And one of the things I didn't mention, but which is very new research, is that oxalate has been linked to the inflammasome and the process in the cells that sets up inflammation. And it actually helps drive that process in multiple places in the pathway. So why would we want a pro-inflammatory substance, which 
it's not just trying to drive it from one part of the, the inflammasome. It's actually in there in multiple places. It's just, it's nasty. And inflammation is, as we know now, behind so many chronic health conditions. And so many of us, we get into our elder years and we are unwell and it is with a chronic health condition. So I think that there's a good news story there that even those who are doing very well now can do better for longer and have good quality of life, which I think is very important. And the other thing I'd like to say about those who want to get more information and they want to have good quality information, the trying low oxalate support groups are a key place. They're free. I volunteer my time there. Um, so it doesn't have to be a lot of money to at least start to understand and get more information. If they want to consult with somebody, uh, you know, and they want to consult with me, they can find me through my email, which is monique at lowoxcoach.com. They can also um, find me on Facebook. I have a page there called Low Ox Coach. And if they join the support groups, they'll see me there every day. I'll go in and answer at least some stuff because this is my pay it forward work. You know, I was so sick when I found that group um, and other people helped me. And so I continue to help people in that way as an unpaid volunteer. They can also look for me on Patreon where they can, uh, they can actually follow me on Patreon. And if they join my Patreon group as a second tier subscriber, I actually provide menu plans and recipes and all the things that help people implement this in their lives. Because the, the biggest thing for many people is they say, well, you know, you're taking all my favorite foods away. What do I eat? <laughs> well, there's lots. I can report that. There's lots. And many people are worried about the loss of spices because many spices are high oxalate. And what I can say is I don't believe in deprivation. So if those people either consult with me or follow me on Patreon, they're going to find out, as I said to my daughter, just how well you can eat this way and just how good you can feel. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Aaron, let's give you the last word. Sure. Uh, I think I'll second Monique's speech about how doing this really has a positive payout. I think as people with Lyme disease, we tend to blame everything on the Lyme disease when it actually might be some other issue that is within our control that we can make a positive impact on our health with. Um, especially for Lyme patients, I think a lot of us trying to do something good end up on a very high oxalate diet. And uh, this was a lifesaver for me. So um, I hope that this is also helpful for other people and that they find as much support and great information in the Trying Low Oxalate group as I have. Awesome. Thank you both very much. Thank you, McKay. Yeah, thanks for having us. This was such a great interview. And you know, Listening to this, I had this vivid memory of back when we first moved in and mom had just started her garden and she had all this Swiss chard coming in and mom had made a soup out of the water that she'd used to steam and process her Swiss chard for the, the greens that yeah. she had made. And 
you know, she had said, oh, come on, just try it. And I was like, no, it smells nasty. And she said, just try it. And I, she, you know, she basically dipped it down my throat. Like, yeah. you know. Forced it, huh? Forced it, yes. And it was just the slimiest, grossest, like, oiliest thing. And I'm just so glad that she decided not to continue doing that. And now I know that it's for health reasons, too. Dear listeners. <laughs> Don't force your small children to drink leftover boiled water <laughs> from your greens. It's they, not doing they, them any favors. They will be scarred for life. <laughs> and there might be some extra oxalates. Actually, I think all the oxalates are left in the green, right? Didn't they say that for the most part, didn't Monique say that cooking the oxalates doesn't, or cooking the greens doesn't remove a whole lot of the oxalates? Yeah, she did say She did say, say that. that. So yeah. she was actually saving your life. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how this is all relevant <laughs> to Lyme disease and people out there, but hopefully they're smiling a little bit <laughs> and we've lightened their day a little bit. <laughs> okay. If you love Aurora's stories and what we're doing here at Lyme Ninja Radio. Let's put it this way. I feel justified not liking leafy greens now. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> that's the point. Yes, that's you the don't point. Have, that's the good news. Yes. You don't have to eat your greens. <laughs> That's not the message here, really. Greens <laughs> so what's are the good message? for you. <laughs> so what's because the message? Remember, we've had Dr. Terry Walls here, and she saved her life by eating, eating greens. Eating leafy greens. Yes. There's a balance. That's the point. The problem is too much of a good thing. If you're juicing like crazy, having pitcher and pitcher of green juice, you might not be doing yourself any favor. So check out the oxalates and see if that's a problem for you. It may just save your life. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss one episode. And if you really like what we're doing leave us a review on your podcast app it helps us reach more people like you and if you really really like what we're doing here at lime ninja radio share the podcast with a friend you might actually save their life seriously and do you have any feedback suggestions for guests really anything send us an email to feedback at lime ninja Yes, we do read every email. We take them to heart. We have gotten some absolutely fabulous feedback recently about what we could do better, and we really appreciate it. We take that to heart, and we try to do our best to bring you the best information in the best format out there on the interwebs. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can make a pound cake with only an ounce? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.